0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. I am here with my co-host, Emily Jane Fox. Hello, Emily.
1: Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. Wherever. Good evening. Wherever this is finding you.
0: Yes. Whatever part of the world you are in. Today, we have a insightful interview with a Vanity Fair contributor, Mei Jung, who is going to talk to us about the uprising in China. She herself is a Korean from Canada, but she spent a month in China for this magazine uh, two years ago, uh, writing about a pop star in China who was basically disappeared, Mm. uh, you know, by the Chinese government. And she went looking for that pop star and uh, learned a lot about China, has a lot of sources there and can talk to us a lot about, uh, you know, what China was like before these protests erupted over the zero COVID policy, obviously, kind of like what we saw in Iran and what we have seen elsewhere. You know, you have these repressive regimes, there's like a lot going on under the surface, people are getting a lot of propaganda, and suddenly everything blows. And what we knew before, you know, suddenly has changed and all bets are off. So that's what we talk about with May. She's an award-winning investigative journalist, she's got a lot of amazing insights, and we're happy to have her on Inside the Hive. Before we go to her, we're going to go to our other hard-hitting investigative reporter, Emily Jane Fox. Hello, Emily. Hey. Welcome to Inside the Hive.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) You know, as I hear, I'm so happy that we have her on and that we're talking about this because it feels like the kind of story we should be talking about that sometimes could get swallowed up in the shenanigans of U.S. politics. And um, I think that that's the point of a lot of these Kooky people who have been running for office uh, over the last five years is they want to suck up all the oxygen in the room, and then we don't get to talk about all the actually important, nuanced, oniony things that are happening around the globe. And I'm really glad that we do. Before we talk about some of the kooky things, and I think we should, don't you just feel like with what's happening in China, with with what's happening in Iran, and then what's happening around around the country, it feels like things are topsy turvy? Have you been following this whole Balenciaga? Scandal. Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: Um, Bring me up to speed.
1: Okay, so Balenciaga, the fashion house, put out two ads that were in an, un- I believe, in an unrelated campaigns. Uh, the first ad had featured children who were holding stuffed animals who were dressed up in BDSM wear. Right, uh, I did and the see this. Yes. Second ad featured like a, what looked like a messy office and sleuths on the internet somehow thought to zoom in. And, uh, they were printouts of a Supreme court case that had to do with child pornography. And, um, that we're even having this conversation is so beyond weird. I have no idea what happened to make it. So I do know that generally speaking, when you're putting out a big thing, there are a lot of people who have to weigh in on those decisions, Uh, I think that there are a lot of people who approve of things. There doesn't seem to be a ton of accidents that happen in in particularly two separate photo campaigns uh, that were uh, likely approved by layers and layers and layers of people. And then that's coupled with Kanye West doing what Kanye West is doing and then bringing that to Donald Trump, who is a candidate for president in the Republican Party, and it just feels like everything's topsy-turvy and like what are what are we what is this world coming to and what are our values and are we getting sucked into a black mirror episode
0: well that's what i was about to say twin peaks just to show my yes. um uh, my vintage references sure but i it, it does seem like donald trump has taught the world that you can play the edge and that actually that might actually help you marketing wise mm. Right. He's going to pretend that he didn't know that there was a white supremacist at his dinner table sitting there with an anti-Semite, another anti-Semite, Kanye West. It's obviously atrocious. We pay attention to it probably too much. Was it an accidental or was it a canny way to get people's attention because he's desperate for attention as usual? But then I also had to think to myself, don't you have a daughter who converted to Judaism and a Jewish uh, son-in-law, who maybe you care about, but then you're going to bring these like rabid, well-known, well-advertised anti-Semites to your own dinner table? It just feels. His grandchildren
1: who are Jewish, right? He has three grandchildren who are Jewish. He has a daughter who is now Jewish, and um, no, he doesn't care about them. It's the reality. Just to clear that um, up, right off yes, the top. Yes, I yeah. think I think that that's the answer. I just. But that's the answer. Do you want to talk about that family?
0: Let's talk about that family. You have written a story uh, in the, I'm going to say, the latest issue of Vanity Fair. No,
1: it it is online now. It will be in print in February, slightly different, but, you know, the general. Yeah, it gives
0: it a longer shelf life. You can read it online, then it's going to come in your mailbox in a glossy, beautifully photographed form.
1: Honestly, the spread is like is kind of iconic-looking. The way it is laid out in the magazine, uh, our fantastic editors and photo team have done what really looks like a classic Vanity Fair magazine spread for this story. It's really, it's they did A-plus work on it.
0: Well, it's a very juicy, very insightful and well-written piece uh, called Inside Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner's Gilded Florida Paradise. Far from Donald Trump or 2024. Uh, now we know why how far they would like to get. I can well imagine in this moment. But I, you know, my uh, I've been hearing about this behind the scenes, of course, because I have special access to Emily Jane Fox's, uh, you know, behind brain. the scenes. Yes, brain. Basically, your brain. And uh, I just want to know what it was like for you right off the bat. I would just want to ask you this very sort of you know, frontline gossip question. Mm. What's it like to... St- you went into their abode. Did you go into Jared and Ivanka's home? You, can I you say like whether I you have went into very?
1: I the- I have I feel very confident in describing the way I described <laughs> the home. Um, yes. I feel like I got a real look at their world. I'll put it that way. I feel very confident in the way I described it. Um,
0: yeah.
1: Here's what I will say. I have been writing and reporting about them, on them for, I don't know, what year is it? It's about to be 2023. I've been writing about them since 2015. Um, So almost eight years, my entirety of my career at Vanity Fair, I've been writing about them. You know, it's interesting. I'm getting, I, I got a mean tweet yesterday about the article saying like, you're blowing smoke up their ass. And you know, it's funny, when, as I was writing this story, I had a feeling that there would maybe be some blowback that I'm writing about that their life is good right now, that they are actually like happier than they've ever been, or certainly since I've been reporting on them, that um, they have not really been tainted by Donald Trump and their association, that they've been able to make a ton of money, live a life that is as out of the spotlight as they could ever wish to be. Uh, They've made new friends. They're not spit on in the street. They're not cursed by ladies with canes waving them in the air in Miami. Uh, And I think a lot of people in this country understandably want them to have the opposite of that. Um, It is not my job as a journalist to make their life bad, right? And I understand why people want their life to not be gilded as it is. I understand they were part of an administration and party to all the things that that, administration, uh, that that administration did in a way that doesn't feel befitting of a peaceful life. I completely understand that. But our job as journalists is to just report the facts as they are, and the reality of their situation is that they are happier, richer, and more at peace than ever. And that is a function of the fact that there are a lot of people in Florida who think of them as heroes, that they did exactly what they wanted them to do. They lowered taxes for them. They kept restaurants open for them during COVID, which, which was a boon to people personally and restaurant proprietors. And uh, people in Florida moved to Florida from major cities in order to save money. And I think that those are the kinds of people who would welcome the Kushners with open arms.
0: Well, okay. So two things I want to say right off the top. The wonderful thing about this story is it's not trying to be an op-ed. It is a work of journalism, a very beautifully constructed work of journalism. And your reaction is not to Emily Jane Fox, it's to what you're reading. Yes. And that's the point of it, right? It's there laid out in black and white for you to judge as you will, right? Which is what's great about it. The other thing is, is like, um, yeah, they they went to Florida um, to avoid what they might get on the streets of Manhattan, which is, uh, you know— Heaps of abuse. We saw how people voted for, on, uh, you know, in this last midterm for DeSantis. Uh, you know, I wrote about Florida a year ago when I went there and spent some time. And people, they have an idea uh, of what freedom means for them, and that's why they're going there. And a lot of money traveled from New York down there, and the Kushner's is part of that, and they're living on Julio Iglesias's island or about to. Yes. right. They're they're building this. Fortress of Happiness, where they can watch Game of Thrones on Friday night. And, you know, they're just like every other everyday couple who gets together and watch their Netflix on Friday night, except for the billions of Saudi dollars sitting in their investment funds. But that's, you know, neither here nor there. Sure.
1: Sure. It's a fascinating term for me. I wrote a story in, I don't know what it was, maybe it was a February issue or January issue of our magazine two years ago. And it basically posed the question of what would their life be like in Florida? And it was a lot of people who were very, uh, I would say they are key players, people who know them, people who know their social circles very, very well, opining about what their life would be like. And the consensus was that they would be ostracized, that the world would never exist to them the way it did. And that story was an incredibly popular story. It was widely read, widely shared. I think that the fact that the idea of them being completely, uh, I believe that the headline of the story was MAGA non grata and that they would just be completely invisible was very appealing to many people. And I understand why that was the case. Uh, and so I wanted to follow up and see if that was in fact true. And I think that my conclusion is to their old circle of people in the places uh, the events that they used to go to, the, the people they used to socialize with, the kinds of circles they used to travel in, in Manhattan, at the Met Ball, in the Hamptons, on the yachts in the Adriatic, they are still maganangrada. grata. They will never be invited back in those circles. And at the same time, I believe there is a sentiment in Kushner world that they are beyond those circles, that once you're in the situation room and negotiating the Abraham Accord, who the fuck cares about going to the Met Ball,
0: right? Like, They're next level, man. They don't need that old, that dirty old town. Right. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And and part of that, I think, is true. Part of that is self-preservation. Like, oh, you're not inviting me to your thing? I'm too good for your thing anyway, right? Like, everyone has had that moment in middle school. You're like, I'm not invited to the party? Like, screw you like i'm i'm better than your party right that's kind of the attitude yep. a little bit and some of that is true and some of that is delusion uh, that's that's where they are and i think they are happily i believe look i never say never and if you were to tell me tomorrow jerry kushner's back running the campaign i would say Okay, like there they okay. go again. There they go again. They they left a really nice life before all of this to go into this in 2015, right? Like they they already made this decision once before. Uh, my deep understanding of where they are mentally is like, what is the point? Like we they they feel like they have accomplished all the things that they wanted to accomplish, and in a way, um, having a three billion dollar fund. That was largely funded by a relationship that he made in the White House. Uh, Whether or not you believe that that is corrupt or crooked or ethically ambiguous or whatever you think that that is, that is what happened. And so, what else is there to do? Why go back?
0: Well, let's also point out one really interesting aspect of this, which is uh, Ivanka's decision not to involve herself in her father's next campaign.
1: And publicly state that I'm that she is not involving herself. Right.
0: right, which I immediately took as there's no way he can win and they know it and they want nothing to do with him. Uh, but also because they've already been tainted and compromised by their association with him and this – I think this Kanye, Nick Fuentes thing – underlines, italicize, and uh, otherwise uh, highlights why they should run as far as they can. Um, I don't know if they can be—like you said, in Florida, they'll always be able to walk the streets and no problem, but uh, in the long historical view, there is no escape from the historical taint. I I will judge them from afar as a reader of your article.
1: Well, everyone will. I mean, from, from you know, I had the urge yesterday to pick up my phone and be like, "What did you, what did you think of him having dinner?" And I just like, I didn't because ultimately I don't care. Like, yeah, the reality of their relationship, and I had I have asked that question of them many, 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 many times. I asked it and around Charlottesville, I asked around all the incendiary, inflammatory, anti-Semitic. Bigoted things that Donald Trump did in office. I asked the question, like, what are you saying behind the scenes? What are you saying publicly? Like, what is your reaction to this? If you're going to be there and you are saying that we're basically the adults in the room, what is your adult's opinion and how are you expressing that to the most powerful man in the country? And uh, kind of every time I asked that question, I was annoyed at myself because, like, either they're saying nothing or it doesn't matter. So I don't really care because it. Either they're saying nothing or what they're saying doesn't matter and he's going to do what he wants to do anyway. Uh, There's something that I've been noodling about since writing this and while I was writing this definitely. Um, There's definitely a gendered thing here Mm. where, you know, for her whole life, Ivanka was this like bright, shiny star, right? She was beautiful and she was Ivy League educated and she was the sibling who was chosen to be on The Apprentice, And then in the White House, and she was the one who was really campaigning for him. And her father talked about her that way. Her husband talked about her that way. And Jared was very much behind the scenes. He didn't really do any interviews. He didn't do any campaigning. And it has switched now, right? Jared came out with a book that was a best-selling book this summer. He did a full press tour, albeit only with conservative media. He's the one who raised $3 billion and started a, a fund. He's been definitely more public, more social, more out there. And Ivanka doesn't have a day job anymore, right? She's not, she's, she's focusing on being a mom and that's completely admirable, Surfing. but she's learning to surf. She's learning breathing techniques. Yes, which honestly we could all use, uh, but it's a real reversal in their marriage Uh, a real reversal in their fortunes, I would say. And yet Jared Kushner is at the announcement at Mar-a-Lago. Ivanka Trump is not at the announcement at Mar-a-Lago. She puts out a statement saying, I want nothing to do with it. And that is covered. And so I think that there's like this expectation that her life should be ruined and that she needs to stay far away from it for her reputation. And yet he's like walking around all over town coming off like nothing's ever happened. And I think obviously, yes, she's his daughter, but he was a closer advisor in the white house maybe than she was maybe possibly more senior, more involved in more things. Uh, And yet he has walked away cleaner than she has. And I have to think maybe that's a gender thing. I don't know. I I think that they, they're both they're both doing just fine, uh, and that that is a money thing
0: more than anything. Right. Well, two things I'll say to conclude here. Well, three things. First, go read this article. If you're out there listening to Inside the Hive, you care about all things Hive-ish, then you must, therefore, read uh, the story about Javanka by Emily Jane Fox. It is—you um, will have— opinions and feelings one way or the other. And it's fun.
1: If you ever um, if you ever thought about Jared and Ivanka and what their life would be like right now, it is, I'm telling you, this is what their life is like right now.
0: Yes, this is the inside. Every dirty detail. Dope. Every dirty deal. And all these weird relationships they have and all the characters in their orbit and what that world looks like nowadays. Second thing I want to say is there was a, a an op-ed in the Times about saying, you know, we should ignore Donald Trump. And when I read that Op-ed, which you should also go check out. I totally agreed with it, and think that we should no longer talk about that former. The less we talk about the former president, uh, the better off we all are. And okay, end of that discussion. But uh, third, I just would like to think about. You know, they're both wearing Kabbalah beads now. You mentioned uh, around their their wrists, right? Yeah. Um, So they're doing some some deep breathing and some meditation. And there's a line in your story. I would love it if they would meditate on. Maybe they can just when they're closing their eyes and they've got their you know cross-legged on the a soft pillow, looking out at the Miami horizon, out of their twenty-four million dollar mansion or whatever. uh, They can think of this um, line about Jared's close personal relationship with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Even after U.S. intelligence agencies concluded that MBS had approved the 2018 killing and dismemberment of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, so after which he made this 1.2 billion dollar deal, I I hope he'll meditate on uh, Jamal Khashoggi because, uh, you know, as we know, he was dismembered with a tortured and dismembered with a bone saw uh, at the behest of MBS. So, you know, this money that's sitting in this fund. And the billions that are financing this beautiful lifestyle, it comes with uh, a big asterisk. And, you know, the average person, you or me, Emily Jane Fox, sure, I'll take a billion dollars, I'll take 1.2 billion, but would I take it from him? I don't think so. You know, that's like an ethical decision to make that. And and I think the way that uh, Jared sees the world is this, he thinks he can be in a kind of a real politic kind of world in which, well... You know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, I'll look the other way because you're, you know, working on my – in my benefit and I'm going to solve Middle East uh, peace because of this relationship and, oh, by the way, I'm getting super rich off of it. I don't know. that There's a certain kind of person that can live with that and uh, I find it to be kind of um, questionable and uh, worthy of examination and I'm glad that you um, made a fine point of it in your story.
1: Well, let me just end on one thing and let me just possibly explain the psychology.
0: Yes, right? please.
1: Um, they have both been compartmentalizing and making excuses for bad men their entire lives, right? Their fathers, we know who her father is. In case you don't know who his father is, went to prison for all a number of different fraud counts, but one count of witness tampering uh, because he thought that his sister and brother-in-law were cooperating with this investigation led by then Attorney General of New Jersey, Chris Christie. Um, And in order to get them to not cooperate in this investigation, he set his brother-in-law up with a prostitute, hid a camera in the room of a motel where this encounter was occurring, uh, took the tape and sent it to his sister. And Jared went to visit his dad every weekend in jail when he was a college student at Harvard, Uh, He thinks that his father is simply the best man. And so these are two people, uh, and and by the way, their fathers are both incredibly rich and for a long time were their meal tickets and their bosses. And so they have been making excuses and compartmentalizing the bad things of bad men who could then financially serve them for their entire existences. So the, the fact that he can compartmentalize what... MBS has done, it's no surprise to me because that's a muscle he's been exercising for, for decades.
0: Yeah. These anyway, are really just wonderful people, aren't they? Yeah. That's my
1: little therapizing um, to help people who potentially can't understand because it's not something that, that you or I or our listeners could ever do. That is, I think, what must be happening in the brains. Take that and do what you want with it.
0: Um, Put it in your pipe and smoke it, as exactly, they say. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well,
1: we will get into our very, very fascinating interview on a very, very important topic. And honestly, maybe this this is like the last episode of the year that we talk about the Trumps.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Let's let's make a moratorium on uh, all no things Trump that December. guy.
1: No Trump yeah, December. No Trump
0: December. Oh, I like that. I like that. Um, so, No Trump December. Uh, we've arrived. Welcome. I've even already forgot what I just said and who I was talking about. Okay. Um Sayonara. Emily Jane Fox, it's always a delight.
1: A pleasure. Listen to the interview, and we will see you on the other side.
0: And now I'd like to welcome Mei Zhang, contributing editor at Vanity Fair, her first time on Inside the Hive. Thanks, May, for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: You have written some uh, fantastic pieces for Vanity Fair, um, and you, you're you an award-winning investigative journalist. We're really proud to have you on here today. And uh, your name sprang up in editorial brain trust here at Vanity Fair when we were thinking about who could tell us about what's going on in China. Uh, it's all over uh, the headlines, and... You know, there's a lot that I get about it, but a lot I don't understand about it. And that's why we'd like you to help us kind of gloss the whole thing today. So, you know, tell me a little bit about your own background since you're, uh, you know, a reporter at Vanity Fair. People may have seen your byline. Um, The last one you did was about a story in in the spring about um, some shootings in Atlanta and some Asian-American victims and what the ramifications of it were. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about your background first. Sure.
2: Um, I live in Brooklyn, and I've been here for about five years. Prior to that, I used to live in Kabul, Afghanistan, where I was reporting on, I guess, the ongoing war there, um, specifically civilian casualties issues. And uh, the story that took me to China for the first time uh, was in 2018, um, when this megastar in china called fan dingbing she's really a household name um it's very difficult to find people in the chinese film industry for example who who hasn't worked with her in one way or another um and she disappeared out of the blue and i was sent there to (laughs) find her in an act of um perhaps hubris or um some misguided devotion to, you know, the power of investigative journalism, and yeah. I spent about a month there looking for her, and the the story that comes out is, um, it, it took me to very unlikely places, and um, what what was most fascinating uh, to me about my time there was just thinking about the, the ways in which um, I think Americans specifically, and I'm not American, I'm, I'm from Canada, and my family's from Korea, um, but there is this tendency to always think about global events within, through the prism of America. And actually, it's kind of interesting to um, have that uh, assumption challenged. And it's kind of, it was kind of exciting for me to think about the ways in which other people live elsewhere. And it doesn't necessarily have to, you know, it's, it's, it's not a commentary on whether American politics is, you know, good or bad. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot in the last couple of days as well with the protests.
0: Yeah. Tell me what you mean by that. Like, um, your expectations for what freedom should look like or democracy should look like are, you know, you can't necessarily apply them when you uh, are going to report on China. Yeah.
2: Sure. I suppose what I mean is that China is one of those issue areas, I'm using air quotes, um, that is often appropriated to advance an argument in America and and sometimes you know with the right it could be an argument in favor of um whatever you know capitalism or you know less state control or what have you and and at times like the, the same thing happens in the left as well and and sim- specifically with regards to responses to the most recent covid pandemic um i think there i've just noticed a lot of rhetoric around and and you know there are these like memes about as well on the internet about how you know, everywhere else in the world, people are, you know, protesting to strike and, and you know, not, you know, and, and then in China, people are actually protesting so that they can go back to work and return to normal life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's a, it's a, it, you know, it's a funny ha-ha comment, but also it's equally um, not entirely helpful, you know, just because the the policies um, and the state response and state violence really in China has been so brutal doesn't necessarily mean need to be uh, what is called an endorsement of the ways in which you know this country has dealt with the pandemic it's been equally no, terrible and not. tens yeah, of thousands yeah. have died here as well and sure. I think that's kind of the ball that I'm always um, interested in avoiding or trying to at least
0: right and there was plenty of um Ignorance and misinformation in this country, that as as we know, drove a lot of casualties, death. You know, um, in addition to conspiracy theories about China uh, being the origin of the of the virus to begin with, and some kind of nefarious uh, thing. We, we we won't get sidetracked on that. But um, but in this case, I think this whole event that we're seeing in the last week, these uprisings that are around the country, in various places. It was sparked by uh, the death of 10 people in a fire in a Northwest province uh, of Xinjiang. Um, And the rescue efforts were allegedly hampered because of the COVID lockdown. People were infuriated, angered by this, and it spread around the country. And obviously, this had been boiling underneath the surface, right? And this was a flashpoint. Tell me a little bit about what life was like in China before this. I mean, we all know... Um, from living just in the U.S. during the pandemic, it can be maddening, you know, being trapped at home, especially as long as they have uh, is. There's something um, can create desperation. Let's put it that way. Uh, so, tell me a little bit about what the zero policy, you know, zero COVID policy was like.
2: Sure. Um, I don't know where you were during the plague, but when it came for for us, I was in New York in Brooklyn, and the first couple weeks, if you remember, I mean, we really didn't know what was the cause. And so then everyone was kind of, um, you know, like wiping down vegetables and, you know, doing all sorts of things. And I guess it's, it's imagine sort of that suspended sense of disbelief and living in that liminal space. And, you know, we all did that for weeks and months, but imagine that extending, you know, beyond the weeks and months into years. And, Mm -hmm. When I first heard about it, I mean, a lot of these, um, like I mentioned, my family's from Korea and um, a lot of these East Asian countries and actually in other parts of um, the region as well, they were heralded really for um, being incredibly effective with COVID response. And so, you know, my family members, for example, they suffered similarly in terms of, you know, being forced to remain at home. But crucially, what was helpful was that because even a country like Korea is more of a social democracy than America is. And it's just also the size as well It meant that they were always um, given access to food, just basic victuals of medicine. And so, you know, there's like the psychic cost of being at home, but you're not dying from, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the inability to get basic medicine. And, and that is what has been happening um, in mm-hmm. China. And that is the kind of... Um, overexertion of state power that people are pushing back against.
0: Yeah. And describe for me, uh, you know, having spent some time in China, what their um, experience of what's happening in the news is. It's obviously like a state-run media. You know, they must have a limited um, kind of knowledge of what's going on. And maybe there's a happy face being put on this policy, uh, but they know it's not that happy. So do you, what was your experience?
2: I mean, yes, the um, censorship remains difficult. Um, interestingly, I mean, this is a kind of an extension of censorship, but the the woman that I wrote about the movie star, Fan Bingbing, she um, fell out of the good graces of the state and was under house arrest is the story. You can read more about it um, mm-hmm. um, in the magazine. Um, but what is astonishing to me is that this happened, her kind of um, fall from, Grace and fame happened and occurred in 2018, Pardon me, and she still hasn't been able to um, star in, in any any movies. And so, the 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 totalizing aspect of the ways in which the state controls, not just you know images and news and numbers, but I think the the or story is kind of at times difficult to comprehend for people who haven't spent time there, maybe, and um, even before coming to speak with you for example I'm you know I, I have a reporting background I, I remain a reporter and so I'm always curious about numbers and they just simply don't exist we have no idea how many people have actually died and we have no idea how many people didn't need to die but perhaps died as a result of these um draconian policies there's just no 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 knowing and I think the only real and true indicator is maybe um The the, the show of anger and distress that we see on the street, that is kind of the only indicator that we have um, of the ways in which life has been very difficult for people for a very long time.
0: Well, it's interesting because uh, there were flare-ups of protests around the country. So there obviously is some kind of like communication going on, you know, workarounds, and maybe they have enough internet access to communicate uh, without, you know, censorship, or they're risking being surveilled by communicating, you know, hey, this is happening. Let's hit the streets. This must have happened.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, people that we've, communities have always managed to you know figure out ways to to uh you know get in touch with each other and you know we're not at the point of like creating like what are those like uh, samites what are they called then uh in russia well you know like underground literatures or whatever um, right and yeah, and I think that's what's been astonishing as well you've alluded to this, but the fact that these protests are Historically, they've often been in urban centers, which is our areas where obviously it's easier to communicate and organize. But it's been happening truly; it's um, nationwide, and as well, um, a lot of the friends that I've um, been catching up with. What is astonishing is I think the the, the brio or like the um, yeah, just like the 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 unbridled courage with which people are making explicit demands that in turn specifically challenged state power. I mean, there are people in Shanghai, you've seen the videos, I'm sure, calling for you know Xi Jinping to step down, and that's just not something that we have seen ever before. Yeah. And again, historically, protests have always been about um, very specific granular issues, like my wages weren't paid, or we don't like pollution, we want the pollution to end. And these were seen as potentially kind of... Um, safe subjects that, you know, that allow people to remain in the neutral gray, whereas I think in recent time it's really been, you know, linked specifically to um, they want, people want the party to to change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, I was pretty shocked to see, you know, headlines about Xi Jinping being sort of like challenged. Oh, we want him to step down. That's, a far cry from two weeks ago, and it looks like he's threatening Taiwan and is like expanding his power. It's like suddenly he's under threat, or at least that's one possible, uh, you know, aspect of this. But let's talk about what some of these protests that have stuck out for you. Some of the, you know, for instance, um, some of the ways in which people are protesting these blank sheets of paper that they're waving around. Let's talk. Tell me about that. Like, what is the symbolism of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, and actually something that I I want to mention as well, I'm just thinking about um, a lot of the images that I found their ways um, out to the West, I guess, um, is a lot of young people, young women specifically, protesting, leading marches and and such. And I guess what's interesting is because of my background, having lived in um, Afghanistan, obviously, I have a lot of friends who are – colleagues as well who are involved in in iran as well and i think it's it's like a terrifying time obviously people are real people are paying with real um real lives but equally it does feel like an exciting time where people want change and and it, it feels quite easy to we feel very removed and and far away from these struggles but you know of course like the thing that we know to be true is that you know freedom and and human rights like all these sort of um big ideals our our struggles are interlinked and that's something that um i explore a lot in my writing as well just the intersectional ways in which our struggles are linked i think is is interesting and, and something that maybe um americans can um draw from as well
0: yeah yeah well i was thinking of, about exactly that about iran and um you know, the the women leading a lot of the protests around, uh, around that. And obviously, some of that is going to bleed over into Chinese young people are also able to observe this and see this, and it gives them some sort of, you know, inspiration or backbone to think about, you know, wanting to have that kind of freedom as well. And it's always been a struggle in China, right? we've seen waves in the past of young people demanding it and then the kind of crushing uh, fist of the state government um, coming down. And in this case, it's happening, right? Also, um, whether it can be put down entirely is is unknown. I think one of the interesting things that I've, I've observed or just read in the news is that China, as a result of these protests, has tried to change some of their policies in order to dispel it, which means that it had an impact. And as soon as you the state shows that there is an impact from protesting. They've succeeded, right? on, on some level. Um, another thing I read and uh, is uh, that I think is fascinating is that this World Cup that's going on is that Chinese viewers of the World Cup could not help but notice that the crowds were not wearing masks, <laughs> right? And so they know suddenly that the rest of the world is not having to live like this and it's going to add more fuel to their uh, fire, right? Tell me a little bit about, about President Xi's—what are the hallmarks of his political rule over the last decade? He's consolidated power, obviously, and but he's sort of, you know, in the Chinese v- political culture, he's pretty conservative and, and uh, isolationist, right?
2: Yeah, um, I think he's taken us to places that we maybe didn't think that we would be. Heading. I mean, the the Fan Bingbing story I did was, you know, she was in the news in many ways um, because she was a celebrity and specifically a particular kind of a celebrity, a movie star. Um, But what happened to her is something that had happened to many members of the the elites in China. And I think before this wave of people being disappeared in this way for dissent, there was a tacit kind of maybe understanding or perhaps a hope, it was more of a hope that basically if you belong to a certain class, it will protect you. And I think Xi Jinping managed to kind of disabuse people of that notion. Mm-hmm. Really, nobody is safe. You could be a um, at the top of your game in sports or business or, you know, in all industries and people and from all these kind of, groups people have managed to yeah be punished in quite quite a brutal and unforgiving and punitive way and for example um yeah like w- with uh van bing what was used was this this thing called like residential surveillance um which is kind of the it, it, it's the, the the thing that kind of put her under house arrest for for a very long time is it's it's similarly the the, the the policies that have, you know, forced like, you know, tens of thousands and millions of Chinese people um, to, to have to remain um, under house arrest as well during COVID. And so in many ways, I think what is, has been astonishing is the totalizing ways in which he has managed to exert his his state power, um, which has often been very violent.
0: Yeah. Do you think what we've seen in the last week could have a long-term impact on his grip on power? I mean, I, you know, I, I'm skeptical reading these headlines, but that, that people are saying we want him to step down. Obviously, that's maybe ridiculous. He doesn't need to. Yet there's always going to be people inside his own government who are looking for an opportunity to weaken him, and this offers a little something. Um, what's your interpretation yeah. of, the, of his political strength right now?
2: Right. Um, I think journalism teaches you to sort of shy away from uh, trying to tell the future because you're often very wrong
0: yeah. um
2: but i don't know I, I really am not sure i guess the thing that makes me skeptical is the way again the ways in which um xi jinping and and his party has managed to kind of erect infrastructure like bureaucracy that then you know gains a life of its own has it managed it allows people uh, allows a kind of a, a surveillance state, and so you know, one thing that I'm thinking about is like this thing that he um, created in 2018 called the National Supervision Commission, which effectively de facto, like you know, gave like carte blanche to suspects being basically like kidnapped or interrogated or or um, or worse. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm I'm always a bit um, suspicious of institutions capacities to to change um but i guess then again the thing is that like we don't really know and i think just the the fervor that we've witnessed you know through these videos and and um reporting from uh various cities in china i think is, is there is good reason for people to to feel at least a little bit hopeful
0: yeah yeah well well i think one thing we can say is it won't be forgotten. And it won't be forgotten by the youth who were on the streets. And, you know, there was a little description in the New York Times of a a man on the street uh, yelling, you know, uh, what is there to be afraid of? And people were filming him on their phones. And he was tackled by officers and shuttled into a car. So, you know, people are going to be asking, where's that guy? Right? And they have him on camera. They have him on videos. And, you know, these things have – we may see protests end. But the after effect will remain underground for possibly years to come, right? Um, it won't be forgotten in that way. Um, and the, But you know the degree to which it will be metastasized into some kind of long-term uh, counterpoint to Xi's rule, we don't know. But um, in any event, uh, May, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about this. Super interesting, super enlightening. I really uh, would urge people to go to Vanity Fair and type into your search engine uh, Mei Zhong, J-E-O-N-G and uh, look for her stories because they're really incredibly well done incredibly well reported, fascinating and uh, will give you some insight and context uh, around the things you're seeing in the news right now so thank you so much, Mei, for coming on
2: Thank you for having me